And then on the people side, my one principle that has been very core to me as an entrepreneur is embracing the weirdness of every single person you meet mm. and also embracing your weirdness, which means recognizing you're special and you're kind of unique, but you're also kind of screwed up and effed up like <laughs> everyone else. And yeah. then aligning with the person you're meeting and knowing that they have strength and figuring out how to combine those strengths and admire that. And that has allowed me to tap into various folks. You know, For example, in my board, we had people of certainly different ethnicities and colors. You know, I was privileged to have two black women on my board, but that was sort of what you can look. But then when you think of their strengths with each person brought, there were people who had never finished college than the people who had two master's degrees on the board and ah. similarly at the employment team. So tapping into everyone's uniqueness See, is I a mean, very powerful tool. This Week in Startups is brought to you by Embroker's Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important types of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Save up to 20% off of traditional insurance today at Embroker.com slash twist. While you're there, get an extra 10% off using offer code twist. .tech Domains has a new program called Startups.tech, where you can get your company featured on This Week in Startups. Go to startups.tech slash Jason to find out how. And Plunge. Go to plunge.com and use code TWIST150 for $150 off your cold plunge tub. All right, everybody, welcome back to our all-star summer here on This Week in Startups. It has been crazy. Darmesh from HubSpot was on the pod. Rich Barton from Zillow, Glassdoor, and Expedia. Dave from MongoDB. Ryan from Qualtrics. And he happened to buy the Utah Jazz. We had a little discussion about NBA teams. Will from Whoop. Mike from Zapier, which makes you happier. Man, and just the train is going to keep going. We've got the Grammarly CEO coming on. I love that product. Aura CEO. A bunch of you folks are lunatics about the Aura ring. LinkedIn CEO. Plaid CEO, Booking.com CEO, man, it's like All-Star Summer is going to go into All-Star September because so many great founders and CEOs want to come on the program and investors, and today will be no different. I have been uh, fascinated with Poshmark since I heard about it, and if you have anyone in your life who is into fashion, you've heard about it. Uh, Manish Chandra is the CEO. Welcome to the program, Manish. Thank you, Jason. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, there's something about the circular economy that captures everybody's attention. Um, tell me, what is the circular economy? What is Poshmark, Poshmark? And why are this group of people so absolutely fanatical about it? So for us, the circular economy is really about conserving what you have and really reusing what you have. So we produced a lot over the last decades, and now it's time to consume what we've produced and recycle it. So that's that's in a nutshell, circular economy. For us, the circular economy means really shopping each other's closets. Instead of buying retail, you buy resale. And uh, if you think about something that almost everyone in the world has, it's a closet. You have some clothes that you wear every day, no matter where you live, no matter which part of the world you are. And likely, in any part of the world, and, and certainly for a lot of people, they have some clothes that they are not wearing right now. Either they've gone out of style, they've gone out of fashion, or they just don't like it. 
Mm. And uh, what we've seen over the last decade is something that you don't want, somebody else wants. So the mm. whole purpose and focus is how to make it delightful and simple for this closet economy to scale and make it easy to buy and sell your closets. Mm. And so what drives consumers towards this? Because it does seem like there's a group of people who are into this, not for saving money, but it's the way they believe they should be consumers. So maybe we could just open up and double sure. double click on that piece of it. This is, and I, and I don't know what percentage of your users this is, but we've always had consignment stores. We've always had the ability to save money if you wanted to buy used. But this seems to be something more than that. There's a bit of a movement here. So if you were to look at 100 Poshmark users, how many would be in that subset of like fanatically interested in saving the planet and having their shoes for 10 years and, you know, if, if they're not using them, making sure somebody else is using them and they don't get fast fashion thrown into a landfill. Yeah, no, I, I would say if you go back to the very beginning of Poshmark over the last decade or so, uh, a small number of people, maybe 10%, 15% have been very much about the fact that it's only for them. It's reuse. It's the only way to shop. It's the only way to sort of live your life to thrifting outside of just the money saving. It's saving the planet because you're not consuming as much, you're not producing as much, you're not producing a lot of the second order side effects, global warming, which is, you know, really upon us in different ways, uh, you are impacting all of that. The volume of those consumers and sort of a whole generation, particularly, you know, the generation we call Gen Z, and even the younger generations after that, are in some ways very focused, you could even use the word militant, mm. fighting for their right, or maybe in a way, undoing the sins of their fathers and mothers yeah. as they consume. Uh, so that's something we've seen a research uh, or, or a surgence in the last few years. And, you know, it would be harder to quantify, but I would say, you know, that number has doubled or tripled as a percentage of Poshmark users where that is a core piece. But if that was the only thing and you didn't have convenience, you didn't have value pricing, you didn't have styling, that number would be much lower. When you mm -hmm. add all of that, it becomes really a core movement. And that's what's happened in probably in the last five years is it's, it was growing and then it's taken another point of inflection. Mm, interesting. And so what are the popular categories on the site? I'm certain some things will lend themselves to being uh, resold other things, maybe less so. So I'm wondering if it's things that are high end, uh, you know, Chanel bags or you know, notable pieces, uh, or if it's just everyday pieces at a great price. Yeah. For us, it's mostly everyday pieces. We have a pretty significant uh. business in luxury. Uh, but unlike, say, the real, real, it's not our only form of business. So we mm. have a segment that's very high priced because we physically authenticate the items. And so that's there. But the, the amazing equation we created with the shopper when we started the product is that we are able to buy and sell apparel, like day-to-day, -day, the shirt you're wearing, the shirt I'm wearing, you can buy and sell. That's a predominant amount, like more than half of the stuff we buy and sell is apparel. Now, that's a category historically that was not very big for eBay, that was not very big for any of the sort of online players, and we literally single-handedly pioneered the growth of that category outside of handbags and shoes, sort of stuff that is a little bit easier to transact than, you know, a dress or a shirt, which has so much uh, fitting requirements, etc. The second thing with apparel is that the average price per item is much lower. 
So you have to make the shipping, the transaction costs much cheaper for that to work. And we've been able to uh, effectively achieve all of that. So it's kind of like, you know, if you think of UberX or Lyft kind of expanded mm. the taxi market, we've sort of expanded the resale fashion market with a singular focus and empowering everybody to be able to sell and fulfill themselves without having to go to a central point and then working on systems that can reduce cost of payment processing, shipping, trust, you know, returns, all of the stuff that become friction and allowing that to create millions of closets across America with each other. And so talk to me a little bit about how you made the decisions about fulfillment, because there's a group of people who are like, I want to send, I want to get the stuff out of my closet. Um, that's like part one. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do the fulfillment. I don't want to manage this. Just get it all out of here mm -hmm. and I'll send it to a consignment store or whatever. Um, and then, you know, there's, hey, is this actually what you said it is? Is it in the condition you said it is in? Is it the right size? And is it authentic authenticated? So if I want to buy something that's Nike, I don't want to buy mm -hmm. a $3 fake Nike shirt mm -hmm. or shoes. I want to buy the, the the ones that are legit. So how did you determine, you know, which model to go with? And did you think about different models or, or running them simultaneously? It's a really good question. I think I think our vision from day one was that you know, imagine if you are uh, a girl sitting in a dorm or sort of, you know, initially we, for the first five years or so, we only ran it in the women's fashion category. And it wasn't until 2016 that we expanded to men's and kids and other categories out there. So from 2011 to 2016, first five years, it was 100% focused on women's fashion. Uh, partly it's because, you know, if you think of traditionally, women are a much bigger uh, consumer percentage of the fashion spend, which means they naturally have bigger closets, they transact more, they're sort of more focused on it. And then over the last four or five years, we've seen men expand their footprint. And for men, you know, it's not universal across categories. Certain categories are extremely biased in terms of their spend. Uh, more notably, sneakers is, you know, it's a huge sort of part of the men's wardrobe in general. But for women, it's really spread across the thing. When you do that, you have to really solve for lower price point because that's the higher problem. I mean, if you have a $30 item, well, to give it to someone or ship it to someone, then they process it and ship it out. There's just not enough dollars to go around. So mm -hmm. unless you take on the process of self-fulfillment, it's much harder to make the economics work. Whereas if you take a $3,000 Chanel bag, well, it can go through many hops and still, you know, there's profit to be had for each hop uh, along the way. So that was sort of one thing. But the other thing was, when you look at sort of uh, one of our users, we wanted to make sure that they can spend $10 here and $5,000 here. So that took many mm -hmm. years to kind of build the right product and the right service level across the spectrum. So we can really be part of your whole closet. And then when we added men's and kids, we really expanded that footprint to all of the dimensions of your life. So today we feel from an end-to-end -end perspective, we provide the most comprehensive resale solution with different levels of things. Uh, now, consignment, which is, you know, say you want to sell something, you may not want to sell it directly, but you still want to make sure your clothes are going to a good home, environmental things, and, you know, maybe the money you make, you can donate it somewhere or whatever. That part is a process that many of our sellers support. We don't have a structured support for it, but many of our sellers act as consigners uh, out mm. there and help other people. And we certainly want to look in the future and maybe creating our own consignment network as an option yeah. uh, at the right time. Again. You know, you got to remain focused on your roadmap as an entrepreneur. You can't just, you know, go everywhere, yeah. but we've systematically added things to the to the product. 
all right, listen, we work with super early stage companies at my investment firm. It's called Launch. I'm talking pre-Series A, right? We're talking seed stage, friends and family. And you know what? At that stage, maybe they don't have insurance yet. In fact, just recently, we had an amazing startup. They didn't have D and O insurance. Uh, if you don't know what D and O means, that basically protects your directors and officers. Directors, board of directors, officers, the people who run the company, your management team. So what do we do? We send them right over to Embroker. Embroker is business insurance built specifically for startups. Embroker's single application helps startups get four quotes for four lines of coverage in 15 minutes. They connect you with one of their expert brokers for unmatched service, and that goes beyond your policy, okay? We use this uh, at all of our companies. It's easy peasy, lemon squeezy. And if you're not getting insurance, you know, at some point you're gonna have to get it. So let's make that point today. Right now, this weekend, tonight, just go to Embroker today with the code TWIST and you'll get 10% off their startup package. How do you get the startup package? Embroker.com slash twist. That's E-M-B-R-O-K-E-R.com slash twist. Make sure you use that uh, code TWIST for 10% off. That also, more importantly than getting the 10% off, that shows them that you're listening to this week in startups. So we love Embroker. Uh, they've been amazing in terms of supporting our founders for years. And of course, this very podcast. Great job, Embroker. Maybe you could talk a little bit about this movement of fast fashion and disposable clothes. This is something that I think is a, is a major driver here. But maybe consumers are learning that if you buy, like my favorite brand of shoes is Crockett and Jones. It's a um, a, a shoe store in London that has been making shoes, I think, for 200 years or something crazy. And I was just on Poshmark. I found all the Crockett and Jones, and I'm like, wow, the resale value of my thousand dollar Crockett and Jones is like three hundred dollars. You know, for my ten year old shoes, wow, this is pretty incredible. If it was a younger, if I was a younger Jason, I might actually buy those nine and a half Crockett Jones and just get the soles redone, and uh, I would be yeah. in them for thirty or forty percent. Um, but then on the other side, you have people going to is it Sheen or Shine, whatever this. Yeah. Um, you know, horrible, horrible trend is of buying clothes and you wear them once and throw them away. You can talk a little bit about that counter trend and, yeah, and how yes. um, people are looking at so it. So a couple of things. Fast fashion has been around in various forms. I mean, Shein is the latest example of it and probably at the very low end in terms of the price point, but you've had people who've been, you know, part of this trend and have been sort of under the microscope if you may i mean many years back forever 21 was criticized as a fast fashion brand mm -hmm. right it sort of changed since then and evolved uh h&m was a very low price brand and they've added you know a lot of sustainability piece etc so rather than commenting on specific brands i would just say that the consumer's desire to have products that give them latest trendy looks at an extremely low price that they can use a few times and they don't care about the life cycle has always been there. Today's mm -hmm. consumer, if you look at a Gen Z consumer and you talk to them, they're kind of a little bit bifurcated in the sense that they will be spending money on Shein and they'll be spending money on a Poshmark at the same time. And, you know, when you ask them the questions and answers, they'll have different answers as to why they do it, but there's a very good framework. The thing that has happened is between social media, which gives you instant access to so much data and information, um, the TikTok trends, which are sort of moving literally by two days, yeah. the ability for an average young person to keep up with all these things that are happening is very hard. 
And when you look at a platform like Shein, it gives they give them a tool at an economic price to be able to keep up with trends. Whether you should keep up with trends or not is not a decision I want to get into, but the fact that these things do that. So what a platform like Poshmark is trying to do is to give them the same kind of trend data, but in a paid forward way. So you can buy that item. It may cost you sometimes more than Shein, sometimes, you know, equal to Shein, but certainly something you can use forward, like you were talking about your Crockett and Jones shoes that can yeah. kind of keep going forward. And, you know, I mean, obviously, it's little less convenient than just buying an item and throwing it away. I mean, you have to sort of use it and then wear it. But certainly the impact of what you do is much higher and the clothes look better. So I think from a pop culture perspective, the movement towards reuse is growing. And I believe that we will hit a point where suddenly if you are wearing an inauthentic or sort of, you know, like if you're wearing an inauthentic designer bag, people will look down or criticize upon you. But I think if you're wearing an inexpensive dress from one of these fast marketplaces, it's not something we sort of consciously internalize. So it's all about sort of that social dynamic that's happening. Mm. The funny thing is, if you search for Shein and Poshmark, there's thousands of items that are up for oh. sale from that brand, which is insane in some ways. Well, what, right. I mean, if it's a $20 piece and you're selling it used, for, how much are you possibly selling it for? I mean, I, I would think people would just put them in a stack and be like, I'm a size X here buy 20 yeah. items <laughs> th th that that happens as well so for very yeah. low price item people will create these mystery boxes uh, and and then and then sell them that way because it's cheaper to transport it cheaper logistically to do that um but an auxiliary point here is that people actually want to buy resale and reuse at a core level so mm. sometimes even fast fashion brands are coming through the resale channel into people's closets which is okay i mean if you're reusing uh, another way I want to think about it is if I buy this shirt and I use it two times and move it forward and then it goes into the garbage pile, supposing I sell it to someone, they use it once and then throw it away. That's not a good use. If I use it 20 times, somebody else uses it 20 times is a great thing. So if a low priced fast fashion item can be used 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times, whatever the number is, it's actually a better usage, even though it is throwaway item. And so use usage in my mind transcends sort of the the bucket in which you put an item mm. and you guys had did you guys go public and then get bought by neighbor is that the yes the history yes of the company? we went public in january of 21 and january of 23 we were acquired by neighbor yeah neighbor of course is kind of the google plus yahoo of korea um and incredible company there's three search engines basically uh neighbor Dow, Daum, and um, Google in uh, in Korea. How did those transactions occur? Is is this becoming uh, the circular economy um, something popular in Asia and Korea, or is it that Naver and and they've had aspirations to kind of uh, have more um, properties in the West? Is it something like they look at you as a way to kind of head west and, and build a base of revenue outside of the uh, Asian markets? A little bit of both, like it's okay. really a, a, a little bit of both. So circular economy is becoming big in 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 US, in Europe, in the developed Asian markets, and even sort of the emerging Asian markets, you are starting to see circular economy become ah. big. Um, you know, you have players like- Where, like uh, Philippines, Singapore? Uh, everywhere. India? I mean, Japan, yeah. Korea, ah. uh, China. Ah. 
Uh, wow. China has massive platforms. Believe it or not, they have uh, sneaker or the resale platforms that are driving, you know, tens of billions of dollars of, wow. of of GMV out there. So it's it's big. But for Naver, you know, as they are looking into expansion, they have a strong thesis that consumer to consumer shopping is a big dominant wave that's here and will grow over the next many de- decades, which we share. It's a shared bill. Mm. So that's the second thesis. The third thing is, out of all the players they looked at, they really thought that Poshmark had the unique sort of market and market dynamic, and they really were interested in partnering with Poshmark. So our conversation started by them making a private investment in a public company and potential discussions around that because they wanted to learn and partner with Poshmark around both C2C commerce and social commerce because we sit at Mm. the intersection of those two things. And somewhere along that line, which we've documented through our public filings, uh, it turned into an M&A discussion. That's fantastic. Sort of ended up leading to this partnership that we are in. Yeah, a pipe, a public investment, yeah. uh, or private or investment in a public, in public entity. Equity, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, question I have is: you see a lot of cultural um, bridges being built, and especially in fashion, music, K-pop in Japan. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, J- Japanese fashion, and in America, all the stuff, anime. It's really it, just in the last, you know, Gen X, our generation, and millennials have really gotten into this Gen Z. So I'm wondering, is there a way for you to move large amounts of product that could be interesting to people in Japan and products that are in Japan to the United States in bulk so that you could overcome this, you know, cost to ship products? I was I went down the rabbit hole of trying to understand how fashion is made because I was looking at some investments and I found on um, very fascinating. There's an underground on Reddit of services that will let you shop in China, put your stuff into a box, put that box into a container. And so you could go shopping and every week they send a container to the United States and then resend your package. So if you're an American and you want to shop the Chinese websites, buy a bunch of products in China and then ship them to the United States, you have this like underground way of doing it. Yes. It's really weird. Um, I think Panda was the name of the the, the product, but th- that shows that there is something here in terms of globalization. So maybe have you thought about that? Has that come up? I- I'm I'm just spitballing with here of, of, of kind yeah, of the future. Yeah, no. I, so we've we've just we're testing something we call a global bazaar for cross border shipping, etc. Mm-hmm. But I think what you're tapping into sort of this optimization of logistics, so it makes it you know cost accessible. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, you're talking about one of these things a little bit more structured. Um, there's a company in Japan, I think it's called Bayou or something, where expats and their spouses mm-hmm. would be shopping on behalf of the core Japanese folks and post photos. And then they would buy this item in a boutique in Europe or whatever and mm-hmm. cost arbitrage because it was significant cost. Sometimes they'll bring it back, but sometimes it was even economical for them to ship it back to Japan. Wow. And then you've, you know, you've seen... K-Beauty as sort of a bulk purchase and certainly Europe coming back here, you've got sites that try to, you know, bypass some of the, the systems. And certainly, I mean, if you've got a person who loves fashion, when they go to Europe, they'll they'll buy stuff at 30, 40% cheaper mm. in France and Italy that you get um, uh, overall. So there's, there's all of this stuff. We haven't looked at optimizing the bulk logistics, mm. but we have looked at optimizing individual point-to-point logistics and making the inventory available but of course all inventory is not easily purchasable so it boils mm. down to more something that are economically better to do but some things that are just unique you know because yeah. there's so much stuff you can get access 
particularly from different markets, you know, whether you're looking at Korea or Japan or France or, or Italy, there's, there's items available that you just don't get. So that's sort of been our focus a little bit in, in, in testing. Um, mm. But the economics and logistics are a significant thing. So Panda-like service certainly could be something we could yeah. um, uh, to look I'm to. I'm just thinking, like, yeah. you don't have any physical, do you have physical stores ever? Have you experimented with we, pop-ups? We don't have physical stores. Yeah. See, I think, like I guess, a pop-up, if you did one in New York, one in LA, one in Seoul, one in Tokyo, and you just did it as a one-year experiment, you shifted a bunch mm. of, like you're saying, the most interesting items from the most interesting folks. You could say, hey, everybody who orders has to use the app when they come to store, they download the app and you could just say, hey, however you, many could, app downloads. Could, yeah. yeah. I mean, one, of the, one of the interesting things is that we recently, about eight, nine months back, introduced live shows in the platform and they've really taken off. What's as, a live show? As a live show is someone actually goes, you know, opens up a live camera. We have something called Pause Shows, full support for transaction in this show. And I can just show, hey, I want to sell this up i can bring it up and i can talk about it that i can start an auction and people mm. auction and buy that that's been uh. a very popular form of shopping so what you're talking about could actually be achieved yes. through these global streaming networks without having to do a full shop but you could kind of effectively simulate a shop where i could put these products up and other people could buy yeah so uh i i, I think i think these Has are that all started very to work interesting. in america have, have, have the live shows because i know that was a big thing in china right I don't know if it got big in Korea or Japan, but have those live shows? Because we had QVC here for a while, but that was for schlocky stuff, <laughs> I think, generally. I don't want to dig QVC. We've seen tremendous success. So we, really? um, yeah. So the format that has worked for us is kind of very different than China and, and mm -hmm. sort of other areas. Where China and other areas is very much focused on big influencers selling a lot of products for uh -huh. a lot of brands. And, you know, it's a big economy there, hundreds of billions of dollars. Sure. We haven't anywhere achieved that, but the business has grown very rapidly for us. We haven't shared GMV numbers or revenue numbers yet on the business, but I would say it's the fastest growing business I've personally built oh, wow. in, 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 in this time frame. It's growing very fast. And the difference is that our sellers are everyday sellers on Poshmark who are selling mm. it. And our GMV is coming from tens of thousands of these sellers as opposed mm. to just a few hundred sellers. Overall. So those sellers are individually selling an item. You're stitching together their videos to play on a live stream. Is that right? Or no, they no, they're doing, they're actually hosting a live. Oh, they so host it themselves. Uh, yeah. Got it. Yeah, okay. So, so, so they will go you, through their 20 items. Yes. Got it. And, and what we enabled was something unique to us was sell together. So mm. I'm selling my items. You can also join my show and I can help you sell your items. Ah. And Bree, who's sitting with me can help, sell her items so, so much more dynamic to do a yes. collab because yes. you can riff on each other's stuff i bring my audience you bring your audience third person brings theirs now we got three and times very as many community people. oriented very community Such oriented, which is one of the idea. essence of poshmark yeah. yes when you're building an early stage tech startup it can be really hard to stand out right well i've got great news for you instead of just selling domains dot tech domains is going to give our twist listeners a platform to show off their startups and that platform is this week in startups. That's right. During this .tech domains ad read, I will watch and judge a 20-second elevator pitch from a .tech founder. That's right. There's only one rule. You must have a .tech domain name to apply. And .tech domain names are blowing up right now. Aurora, a self-driving AI startup, they are building at Aurora.tech, another AI startup called 1x.tech. 
backed by Sam Altman and OpenAI, is also building on a .tech domain name. It's sweeping the globe. So if you're interested in pitching me, and I'm going to give you candid feedback, and you're building on a .tech domain name, all I want you to do is fill out a form at startups.tech slash Jason. That's right, startups.tech slash Jason. Fill out the form to apply, and I look forward to giving you feedback on your startup. You had work in the uh, social shopping space. So this was an area people don't, it's a forgotten area, but I had invested and was on the board of a company called This This Next. Okay, You were at Caboodle. Yes. And then there was this weird site, Pinterest, that was trying to make it work. Yes. And you had a couple of other people who were doing it. Um, Why did that largely fail? I mean, I know you sold, but that whole space didn't create exactly enough value to come become strong independent. Obviously, Pinterest came out of that. And then, uh, you know, what you're doing with Poshmark. So what are the lessons you learned from that? Was it just too early? Was the affiliate revenue that most of you relied on just not enough? I, I think, I think the, the, the three lessons. One is, I think, as an entrepreneur, um, how you think about the product and problem um, determines the outcome, right? And so... I typically give this uh, story, Jason, where we talk a little bit about the fact that somebody looks at the coffee cup and sees a coffee cup. Somebody looks mm-hmm. at it and thinks of a coffee cart. Somebody thinks of it and thinks of a coffee shop. Somebody can visualize a couple of coffee shops. But there was somebody who looked at a coffee cup and visualized a whole Starbucks. Mm. And so how you think about the problem and how you redefine the problem matters, I think, mm. Pinterest founding team, particularly when I give a lot of respect for them, they look at the problem, they kept iterating and expanding the scope of the problem till that problem became so big and they could solve, you know, really big, big things. What, what do you think their their definition of it was that worked so well versus, say, the other ones that didn't work out so well? Because they're you're saying they, the framing. They, uh, they, yeah. the, the magical thing in my mind, there was two magical things. If If... If we could go back that far, and you and I probably remember very clearly at that time, just for your audience, I'll paint a picture. The the vogue at that time was products like Delicious and Caboodle, where you would go to a website, clip something, store it, and people could collaborate on it. That was sort of the shopping thing. Caboodle yes. had sort of taken this and organized this, kind of like Pinterest, in the form of a list. So you could go there, you could clip it, and everything was on the list. So it, was, it felt very utilitarian, you know, because it was in the form of a list. It was visually uninteresting. Then came a company called Polyvore, if you remember, mm, yeah. Sequoia funded, yep. you know, uh, ultimately, I think Yahoo bought it. There, they took the same sort of clippings, but people would organize them in these beautiful visual collages, spend times mm. perfecting them. Their engagement in Posh, in, in Caboodle, the velocity of creation was very high. The engagement velocity was low. So it was kind of not a great media property, it was a good utility. Mm. Polyvore was a great media property. The number of creators was very small because it took a lot of time. But once you created this thing, this collage was very fun to consume. Mm. I felt what Ben and team did was they really combined the two things. So they Mm. made it very easy to create. So creating was just clipping. But instead of displaying the whole thing as a collage, they automatically created a collage of these images, hence a pin board. The second dynamic we saw was enabling a creator to go to various websites and clip from it was slow. But when you reclip something, we had a something called add to Kaboodle, which was a kind of a repin. It was much faster because you were right there. You know, you don't have to go to another site. You just kind of repinned it. Ben and team 
focused on that repin mechanics, all that sort of thing. And basically between repinning and this easy visual collaboration, they tapped into two things, increase the velocity of creators by tapping into repin and increase the velocity of consumption by not having to spend time laying mm -hmm. it out, but just sort of auto laying it out. Yeah. So I think they they kind of took the best of both sides and so they they out executed everybody. They really yes. figured they figured yes. out that you need it needed to look beautiful, but it needed to be utilitarian and fast. Yes, and this is a great lesson for all entrepreneurs making product. Is there is just no slowing down. You have to keep iterating, and it has to be beautiful, and it also has to be functional, right? And sometimes people yes. make things that are beautiful. Yes, you know, as you were pointing out, like um, people were really bummed uh, when that website um, you mentioned, Polyvore close their doors i remember yes. like that was a community that really really had codified itself and then you look super at the passionate. yeah super passionate they were very deep into it like here's days like a hipster magazine talking yeah. in 2018 about you know how heartbroken they were when this thing uh was gone so uh i guess that takes me to your doing a good job building community at Posh poshmark so what have you learned about community across the two companies? And let's face it, you started as an engineer at Intel in the eight, late 80s, early 90s. Yes. So I don't know when you got into being a fashionista, uh, but that's probably a good question too. But what have you learned specifically about community? Let's start there because it's hard to build a community. What's, it, what's in your playbook? I think building a community is about simplicity and authenticity, right? So simplicity in the sense that Community doesn't need a hundred features. They need like one or two things that they do that they really love to do on your platform. And their focus will be around that. Mm. The second thing is authenticity is very important. And that's a hard lesson uh, that people learn in, in that if you're doing something, you need to be transparent. If conversations are happening that are difficult conversations, they need to happen. You cannot curtail them you know within the bounds of legality and other things but beyond that just because people are being rough about your company or about something else you cannot control that flow of conversations mm. and uh, both of those things were true in caboodle but you know it was something i had not fully internalized in poshmark those principles were codified from day one uh, is there the third thing is if you build a very powerful community and then you try to shove monetization into it in an artificial way it causes problems you know we've mm. have had a recent example without naming the particularly popular social site that tried mm. to over monetize something and is having a revolt and so one of the core first principles at poshmark we put in is lead with love and money follows lead mm. with engagement and monetization follows and so being a marketplace you know the more you have engaged users you know sort of built that virtuous cycle so that allows us to continue to focus on authentic community tools and not sort of get veered away in building something that's antithetical mm. community. And and so for me, those were all lessons. I mean, at one point in Caboodle, in the middle of the 08, uh, you know, recession, yeah. we were, because it was a depressing time, the media business, depressing time everywhere, but particularly finance and media businesses were held extraordinarily hard. Mm. And... Um, we were running like four, five, six ad units on a single page. It's hard to find what the content was. Yeah. Because, you know. You were so uh, desperate so to get some money in the revenue, door. Yeah. That you're just slapping yeah, ads everywhere yeah, and you yeah. over monetize. So I love your rules. Simplicity. There's only one or two features you need. 
Two, authenticity. There's going to be some hard discussions. Sometimes people in communities get a little rough. You got to kind of embrace that within reason. Obviously, there's some hard lines. And then monetization. Lead with engagement love. Money's going to follow, but you don't have to overdo it. And I guess Instagram's the one that's been like shoving it down people's throats. Way too many, you know, trying to sell stuff. They're playing catch up. I, you know, I, I think the ability to share money um, or just help people make a living is so powerful. Like whether it's Airbnb, Uber, DoorDash, Craigslist, you know, all these uh, places that give you the ability to to make a living or make some side hustle. Um, and, and now Twitter X giving a share of revenue. I guess how many of the people who are on the platform are like dedicated and making a full time living, a part time living, or just doing it because they think it's the right thing to do? And and do you address those segments? Have I segmented it properly? Like full time, yeah, part time? No, absolutely, absolutely. It's a care? continuum. It's a continuum, yeah. though. I think there's a lot of people. I mean, percentage wise, I don't have a ready made number, but I would say a good one tenth to one fourth of the people, between ten to twenty five percent of the people are using Poshmark for some sort of income generation needs, mm. if not more, right? I mean, again, depend. this is just based on dollar, et cetera, yeah. uh, uh, overall. But then even people who are not doing it for that level are still generating income because there's, yeah. no, there's no free, like if you sell something, you make money and right. now you may right. redeploy the money. So a big chunk of our users are what I call revolving closets. Mm. Whatever money they make on an aggregate, they spend it right back on the platform. Love it. And so that is truly circular do economy. Do they leave the money in the account and then spend it and buy it? Sometimes they do. I mean, quite often they do. But many times what they do is they'll actually withdraw the money and then spend it back. So, for example, huh. they make 80 cents on the dollar. And for this community of sellers, if you look at it, literally, if they earn $100, they're spending $80 back on the platform as a community, right? That's so and great. so to me, that's the power of community is that they're shopping from each other, they're buying from each other, and they're spending everything right there. All right, when you're an entrepreneur, an executive or investor, you know, your mind needs to be sharp. And to keep your mind sharp, you need to treat your body right. Don't I know it? It comes from eating right, which I'm doing exercise, I'm doing that. And let me tell you about my newest activity. No, it's not sleep. You're gonna get sleep? Nope. It's cold plunges. Yes, I've taken the plunge and it has been incredible for me. I am so thrilled to tell you about plunge.com. That's where I got mine from, plunge.com. It's sleek, it's beautifully designed. When I put it on the side of my house, everybody says, ooh, what's that? Oh, that's beautiful. It's an insanely high quality product. It's ready to go out of the box. It takes three minutes to feel amazing. You just jump in there, you can set it on a dial. Listen, I'm not a doctor, this isn't medicine. What this is, is an amazing way to feel great. And if you do any of the research on it, you listen to any of the folks online talking about the value of cold plunging, at a minimum, it makes me alert and feel great. Just go to plunge.com, plunge.com, plunge.com. They also have gorgeous saunas too. Maybe get one of those next. Start doing cold plunges like your boy J. Cal. It makes you so alert. I feel like a superhero. I get out of that thing. I feel like I can take on the world. So once again, go to plunge.com and get your incredible cold plunge tub today. By the way, if you use my code twist150, T-W-I-S-T-150, you're going to get 150 bucks off. Use the code twist150, get 150 bucks off your purchase today and uh, take the plunge. What can I say? I think one of the great things that I've learned over time is if you just look at how things are constructed today, a lot of times people are going for margin. It's a race to the bottom. They're using terrible products. And then I just had uh, the founder of Bolin Branch, if you know the um, mm -hmm. the sheets, 
And he's gone the opposite direction where he wants his brand, uh, uh, Scott Tanner, who's great on the podcast. He's buying Egyptian cotton that's organic directly from yes. the purveyors. And then he's building high quality stuff. He wants it to last forever. And what, what Tannen uh, was saying is they put in their stores like all of the cotton sheets and they show you after 50 washes, 100 washes, 200 washes that it gets better. But then if you're buying the cheap stuff, it falls apart and it's not meant to last. And, I, you know, I was talking to one of our producers here and they like to buy, you know, certain type of uh, jackets that uh starter jackets you know like you were a starter on the, mm -hmm. the football team and the quality has gone down in the last 20 years but if you buy them from the 90s or the two early 2000s they're very high quality so it's actually you could save money buy something of higher quality and it's got that vintage retro vibe to it so it's kind of more unique in the world and so there's just so many things going in the right direction for you um and uh really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, and sharing all of this if you look back on your entrepreneurial career, what what are the major lessons that you think, you know, for a founder will result in success? Success being, you know, building a large sustainable business. I think for me, the first thing it starts with is people. Surrounding yourself with the right team is is key. I mean, all of my co-founders are still here with me after you know, 12, 13 years, IPO, back to public, they're still there. You know, if I look at my first 20 employees, probably 16, 17 are still here. Uh, second is commitment to growth, your own growth, the growth of the people around you, the growth of your investors. Uh, I feel like if you're not growing as an individual, you can't grow the business you're in. So that real commitment to growth is 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 key. The third thing is when difficult circumstances come in front of you, you got to figure out realistically what are your choices and then use that opportunity to accelerate your march to whatever the destination is. And so for me, you know, we've gone through lots of ups and downs in, in, in Poshmark. There have been times, you know, where I've been rejected by 100 investors sitting there and using that moment to sort of figure out, you know, with the resources mm. we have, whether to become profitable, change the profitability or, you know, when times are really dark, you know, I tune out of the current dark times, you know, obviously take action there, but then also dream of a good future. So sort of keeping that dream intact or looking at, you know, realistically, what are sort of the different things where the world is going and how do you sort of take it forward, which when we found the right partner and neighbor, we decided it's the right thing, not just for uh, the entrepreneur or just for the employees, but for the investors, for the community, for the mm. customers, for the partners, you know, making those holistic decisions. So, you know, if you go back, it's like, you got to have a big dream and, and believe in that dream that your dream can be big, no matter what you're doing. Second is start with the right group of people and treat them well and make sure you're committed to their growth. And fourth thing is take every circumstance and create a way to accelerate your growth as opposed to impede your growth. That has sort of guided us. Mm. And then on the people side, my one principle that has been very core to me as an entrepreneur is embracing the weirdness of every single person you meet mm. and also embracing your weirdness which means recognizing you're special and you're kind of unique but you're also kind of screwed up and effed up like <laughs> everyone else and yeah. then aligning with the person you're meeting and knowing that they have strength and figuring out how to combine those strengths and admire that uh and and that has allowed me to tap into various folks you know for example in my board we had people of certainly different ethnicities and colors. You know, I was privileged to have uh, two black women on my board, but that was sort of what you can look. But then when you think of their strengths with each person brought, there were people who had never finished college, then the people who had 
two master's degrees on the board and ah. similarly at the employment team. So tapping into everyone's uniqueness See, is I a think, very powerful tool. I like the way you state that because if you state it as like uh, DEI, identity politics, it's kind of a road to nowhere because, oh, I, you know, I check no. box, I have one of this type of person, one of this type of person. What no. you're really saying is, you know, we're all have unique experiences and a diversity of experiences, um, you know, is going to contribute to the success of the company. And embracing the weirdness is just such a fun way to do it because like i said we're all up we're all got different exactly. skills etc so when yeah. you come to it as the leader if you accept that everybody's unique and a little bit different you don't have to be mad at people for being unique you just kind of they got their own mutant superpower and you just embrace them for having and, it and don't in, in in that same vein of we are talking about it and you, when you look at a person don't just think that because the person looks kind of quote-unquote normal that they are, mm. don't have massive weirdness just the fact that you know okay this is the mainstream person he has x y and z characters he should be fine or they she should be fine or they should be fine yeah and this person but but everyone is going through tremendous amount of struggle and being able to yeah. embrace them and empower that journey allows us to just grow and learn from everyone yes yeah, so, you know what it's so well said um thanks so much for coming on the program you are a wild card of awesomeness you know we're like saw you we heard you on another niche podcast and my producers were like who is this guy he's got such interesting insights and you didn't disappoint continuous success everybody go check out poshmark if you haven't already uh just well done and thanks for coming on the pod thank you jason